Welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball Direct, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week we are kind of feeling shell-shocked. I mean, we had a a pair of six-goal margin beatdowns, a high-profile coaching change, and a classicer that, frankly, spewed storylines all over the weekend. With me to uh, help clean up is my old friend Terry DeFellin, who is uh, now a published author, I hear. Yeah, indeed. What a coincidence that I should be coming on the show uh, just as my book comes out. Uh, But actually, it is a coincidence, because if you remember, Matt, we said we would do this on this date, and I didn't at the time know that my book, Borussia Dortmund, A History in Black and Yellow, would be coming out this very weekend, and it's now available for Amazon people. It's there on Amazon right now, so you can you can buy it. But uh, yeah, thanks very much for welcoming me back on the show. It's fantastic to be here, and I can't wait to get stuck into what has been an eventful weekend in the Bundesliga. Oh my God. If only Dortmund could have uh, sent you the same present that uh, Talking Foosball has this weekend. Actually, that probably would have been a better present, but you know, that's okay. Well, in many ways, it was a gift. I mean, we could talk about it a little bit, a little bit more. Well, now, really, frankly, but in many ways, it was a gift. But in a more accurate way, it really wasn't. It was a, it's a really disappointing result. Yeah, yeah. We will be talking it over. We will be right back with uh, lots of classicer talk as well as discussion about the rest of Match Day 14's highs and lows. But while I have you here, please do subscribe to the pod. Please do give us a five-star rating. It helps us spread the word or, you know, tell your friends. And if you're feeling really, really sweet, become a supporter over on Patreon. We have tons of Bundesliga history podcasts, tactical breakdowns, single club deep dives. It's a big help in uh, helping us pay the bills. Here comes part one of Talking Foosball Direct, the part where we talk about the best of the match day just gone, and there is absolutely nowhere else to start this week other than the Classicer, Der Classicer, if you want to be, uh, you know, fully promotionally sound about it. If you hadn't heard, let's face it, you have. FC Bayern München, they were 3-2 winners, away to the Ballspielverein Borussia Dortmund on Saturday. Kind of a familiar result to those of us who have been watching these, uh, you know, so-called classicers over the last few, few years. But I would actually argue it was not really the same old, same old. I, I did not perceive a big gap in class in this game. It certainly could have ended 3-2 the other way or, you know, level at 2 or level at 3, simply depending on some refereeing decisions, which I'm sure we will address at some stage in our discussion. I thought there were certainly phases of the game where Bayfell Bay were giving Bayern really, really more than they could handle. So, you know, we do have a four-point gap at the top of the Bundesliga now. It was only a point a week ago. But I'm feeling quite okay about the future of the title race, the future of this uh, rivalry. How are you coming out of it, Terry? Yeah, I'm a little bit more bruised because obviously I'm a Dortmund fan from the experience. But I mean, if I can be objective, it's possible to be objective about it. This was an absolute humdinger of a football match. It was hell's a popping. It had pretty much everything. I mean, well, the only thing it didn't have was a midfield. Um, <laughs> and maybe this is some kind of like new wave, new kind of Nagelsmann-esque wave of football in the future is that they're just going to dispense with the midfield. But I guess if you don't have Joshua Kimmich in your side, then why I was about to just say, like- if you don't have Kimmich, just, just bypass the whole affair. 
<laughs> it's like, sod that. Let's just go straight to basketball. And for a while it was. It was proper, like Bulls v Suns 93. It was really, really high quality stuff. And then it kind of lulled a little bit more like, I don't know, the, the Globetrotters versus the Generals or something like that. A little bit more comedic as some of the errors started to come in. But it had, it had tremendous entertainment, end-to-end stuff, some fantastic goals, tremendous drama. It had a fair share of mistakes. It was an absolutely classic game, and I completely agree with you, Matt. I mean, it, nobody would have felt that the winner, I think, didn't deserve the points, notwithstanding, obviously, refereeing decisions there. If Dortmund had won that game, I think they would have totally deserved it. And, I, and you have to say, again, notwithstanding refereeing decisions that we, we will be talking about, you know, Bayern did enough to win that match. And equally, a, a draw would have been fine. It was genuinely one of those games. It's been ages since we've seen a classica like that. Because oftentimes, in recent times, they have been way too one-sided. Or they've been like like crazy, like 5-2 results or stuff like that. Yeah, it felt like a toe-to-toe game. Although I think you're right in saying that there was a little bit of a, a helter-skelter quality to this game. There was more chaos than there was um, fully organized play. And I guess you could kind of illustrate that by talking about how... Um, I guess maybe the first two Bayern goals came about, at least in my opinion. These were pretty clear, just mess ups by, by first Matt Sommels with that loose touch near midfield that basically got uh, turned into a, a quick break that Bayern converted. And then Rafael Guerrero trying to clear the ball. I guess he was trying to clear the ball. Maybe he was trying to pass to somebody, but passing it basically into the middle while he was in his own penalty area, which is basically, you know, Never, ever do that, youngsters. Is there a part of you that feels like <laughs> on another day, those mistakes would not have been present and this could actually have been a credible, I wouldn't say necessarily dominant performance for Dortmund over Bayern, but, you know, they kind of gave Bayern those first two goals in a really sort of disappointing way. And this feels like an Achilles heel. I'm not the first person to mention this sort of thing from Dortmund, but it has to feel a little bit self-inflicted. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. I mean, I, with the first goal, all I would probably say, in addition to to, to Matt Sommels' error, but it also you do have to admire the tenacity and skill of Thomas Muller for taking full advantage of that situation and setting up Lewandowski's goal against a different opposition. I think Matt Sommels may even have got away with that error, but not against Bayern Munich. There's a steel and there's a resilience about this Dortmund team under Rosa this season uh, that I really, really like. There's a determination to win. They've had injury problems and, you know, better and cleverer analysts than me have pointed to their structural problems. But I think that there's a real steel about the way Dortmund have gone about this. But at the same time, there is that capacity for calamity that they have shown in the past and it was always likely that, that they were going to show it again. Maybe not with such regularity, but as you say, it was such a mad game that there was errors going on on both sides. I think that everyone just got caught up on the, in the occasion. And so it, it is disappointing to think that if they had played with the kind of proficiency of other Bundesliga teams operating this season, then they would have won that game, I think, quite comfortably. And in fact, if they played with that kind of efficiency throughout the entire season, they'd be comfortably top of the table. 
But in terms of this match only, you could also say the same thing about Bayern Munich. They could have won the game quite comfortably had they, had they said so. So I think in the context of the match itself, I think you just have to acknowledge that this is just stuff that's going to happen with Dortmund. It's going to stuff that's, stuff that's happened with Bayern. It's one of the reasons why the game was so great. And in that respect, you have to take the rough with the smooth. Sadly, from Dortmund's point of view, there's uh, more rough than smooth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, despite the fact that you know, maybe I guess the first goal, Brandt's goal, had a certain beautiful. Oh, is it, it was sumptuous. I mean, that was probably the only goal among the four that sort of didn't result from any kind of like, you know, coincidence or you know, mistake. And and for that reason, it had a kind of magic to it, especially going up one nil in a game where you know Dortmund were really sort of behind the eight ball. But all the other goals, even though they did result from some sort of error, whether that be a penalty or a bad touch or whatever, they were all taken extremely well. They were all <laughs> viciously taken. And so I don't want to take a single thing away from Erling Haaland or Lewandowski or Kingsley Coman because those were all the kinds of goals that like most teams don't have a player that can do that. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why this game, and there's more than, there's quite a few reasons why this game, but, but why this game, this particular game between Bayern and Dortmund this year is going to go down in the annals as one of the great Dortmund be Bayern games, one of the great classicers, because there was just so much quality matched with just so much chaos as well. And some of the best games between Bayern and Dortmund have been like that. They've been super emotional to the point of lunacy at times. And this is definitely up there at that. And again, it's it's bitterly disappointing. And you can tell the disappointment, the febrile nature of Twitter immediately after the game, a lot of the anger. I suspect it's not just because of the officiating. It's just because of just the way that this game played out. It was just so emotional, so much quality, so many mistakes all jumbled up together. I mean, it was an absolute classic. Yeah, yeah. And and as you said, there was a lot going on. We haven't mentioned, you know, Julian Brandt's uh, concussion, which took him out of the game. Thank goodness it looks like he's he's on his way to recovering. He's probably going to, you know, miss a game or two. But um, as long as everything goes well for him, uh, that should, should be okay. We didn't talk about the miniature flock of pigeons that seem to want to just hang around for much of the second half at different parts of, of the pitch. Um, but what we really do need to talk about, and it's what everyone has been talking about, it's about the refereeing decisions. And really – Ah, it's so tough. There's so many different angles to hit this on. I mean, I think you had maybe two different areas where people were upset, or three, if you want to bring in Swire, uh, which we really should. First, it was simply, how can you give a penalty to Bayern for a handball on Mats Hummels when you didn't give a penalty for another incident that took place a few minutes earlier where Luca Hernandez basically kind of gave Marco Royce a bit of a shove when he was going for a ball in the box. That's one point of injustice. Another one being, you know, what makes you go look at the monitor for one and not look at the monitor for the other? What, how, how exactly is this process of negotiation with the, uh, you know, the basement in Cologne going that makes that into a justifiable decision? And then finally you have, you know, and this gets into what Jude Bellingham said after the game, you know, Felix Zweier, who he is, what he means to, you know, German football, both in terms of his past in 
big games as well as his distant past in uh, match fixing. And it's just a, a, a delicious cosmic gumbo <laughs> of, you know, ugliness. And it hurts more. And I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm, you know, not, not a fan of either of these teams. But when you see Bayern win the title for nine years in a row and feel like so many things have gone their way, even a slight ambient feeling of having a thumb on the scale for that team. I think you mentioned the sort of reactions that some people were putting out on Twitter. There was just an extreme bitterness about this that was really, I was a bit shocked. Mm. It is a difficult one, isn't it? Well, I don't know. Is it? Maybe it's not. I mean, in the first instance, I mean, I think that if you are going to review penalty decisions, then you should review them. I mean, I think if you're going to review Hummels, handball, then you had to have reviewed Hernandez's foul. I believe that has subsequently been said, I think it was said not long afterwards, and I think it was confirmed by the DFB, that uh, Haaland was standing in an offside position in the build-up to that. This is something else that fans of not Bayern have heard from Bayern in the past. It's like, oh, well, you know, I mean, like, that wouldn't have counted anyway because your guy was in an offside position 30 seconds ago. Or, oh, well, you know, your guy committed a foul five minutes ago, so it wouldn't have counted. Or, oh, well, you know, that guy was scratching his backside in front of a referee like 10 minutes ago and so would have been booked for, for bringing the game into disrepute. And for so that would backside have Backside scratching. We have this kind of, this, we have this kind of dialogue with Bayern fans <laughs> quite a lot. I would, it wouldn't have counted anyway. And maybe it wouldn't have done. And maybe Harlan was offside. But the thing is, is that the flag never went up. So he wasn't offside. And so it wasn't reviewed. And so we never got the opportunity to find out whether he was offside or not. And it might well be that it wasn't a penalty. And it might well be that the penalty, if it, if it was a penalty, that it might have been missed. There's any number of things. And in a game like that, there is seriously any number of things. I would not have put money on Marco Royce converting that penalty under those circumstances at all. So there's a lot that didn't get done, but it's only fair that both teams get their due. The other thing that's come through certainly in this morning is, is a lot of, and this is mostly Dortmund Twitter, to be fair, you know, publishing on Twitter screen grabs of, you know, Bayern players committing fouls or committing handballs and it not getting reviews, some in going back some time, some going, you know, fairly recently. And it's difficult to argue against that kind of narrative. And also I would go further, Matt, I would say, actually, if you are Dortmund and in fact, if you're any other club in the Bundesliga, I would encourage them to rail against that narrative because one, I suspect there is probably something in it. I don't think how there can't be. Bayern have been the dominant force for decades and they have won the last nine league titles. There is no way that they don't get under the skin and into their heads of the of officials, there's just no way they don't. I mean, I I come from England. I remember very very vividly the '90s and the great Ferguson years, where he completely rewrote the narrative of the Premier League. You know, just by his messaging, just by getting out there into the media and making these statements, accusing Liverpool of this, accusing Arsenal of that, saying you know, accusing Howard Wilkinson of of, of the other, and people getting really angry with him, and yet it worked. It worked, you know. I mean, the concept of Fergie time, of extended injury time, comes from a, a specific game against Sheffield Wednesday that meant that Alex Ferguson was desperately trying to win. It works. A few years ago, Bayern Munich did an extraordinary press conference 
just to have a go at the media because they thought that they were being mean to them. And the reason why they did that isn't because they're shrinking violets. Isn't because they're just like, you know, ooh, you know, it, it, it's because they know this stuff works. It, it translates into points. Um, and it's important that everybody else in the Bundesliga understand that too. And so, yeah, go out there after the game and say, you know, this happens with Bayern. We always get this with Bayern. It's the Bayern bonus. Push it. Even if it's not true, it doesn't matter. Because we don't, we're not concerned with truth here. This is football and this is 2021. <laughs> truth doesn't matter. You know, it's how people feel and what the perspective is and what the perception is. Yeah, yeah. We do not live in the reality-based community no, anymore. We're not here for that. This is football and never has been. All right, all right. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about Jude Bellingham and his comments after the game, which I think were probably, of all the strange and shocking things that came out of this game – you can just tell by looking through through German uh, newspapers and, and magazines, that was the most shocking thing. And just to give folks uh, a bit of background, because this takes some background, Felix Zweier, who was the uh, referee in this game, it turns out he was a linesman in a game that um, Robert Heutzer, which uh, is, is a referee who was involved in a very famous match-fixing scandal back in you know the mid-aughts, uh, which took place mostly in the lower leagues uh, around Berlin, although did end up touching a couple of uh, DFB Pokal games and second division games. But Felix Zweier was a was a, a linesman in a game that Robert Heutzer basically helped manipulate and took hush money at the time and uh, didn't talk publicly about it. The DFB, behind closed doors, learned of his involvement in this. They punished him. They gave him a six-month ban, but also kept his punishment secret until it came out in something like 2014. So anyway, at least for the last seven years, it's been a public matter that um, Felix Zweier was involved in the uh, the Hoitza affair. And, you know, I guess there had been a perception that maybe this was a, a, not a good thing or that uh, this this was, you know, calling his reputation into question. But now to hear Jude Bellingham after the game mention in a post-match interview, well, this referee, he, he was involved in match fixing. Like, what do you expect? This indicates to me that, you know, if, if Jude Bellingham, who he's what? 19 years old or something like that. He was barely a kid when, when all this was going on with Hoitzer and he was only, you know, maybe a 10 year old when it became public. This tells me that the Dortmund team and probably other teams think of this guy as a crooked ref and think of him as somebody whose reputation is stained. Mm. I, of course, have no, you know, evidence that that is a true or fair assessment of Felix Zweier. But it is true that he took hush money to cover up uh, match fixing and, you know, got a pretty mild penalty for it. And if it's the case that a lot of players know about this, a lot of players talk about this and think of him as, you know, not a fully fair and credible referee, that's a huge, huge problem. Yeah, absolutely. I was really very surprised that Jude Bellingham made those remarks. I, I was kind of surprised Jude Bellingham knew. And mm -hmm. then, yeah, yep. you wrote a tweet earlier on today uh, saying basically what you've just said now. And of course, yeah, I mean, Jude Bellingham has found out because it's probably because it must be common knowledge. But also Jude Bellingham is young, 18, and very new to the Bundesliga and then possibly just didn't feel that 
mentioning something like this publicly was the done thing. I mean, I mean, I admire him for doing it. I've got to be honest with you. Uh, I think that he probably must know he's likely to get a ban for doing so, or perhaps fine. But I, I would like to think that Dortmund will stick up for him and try and support him. And I know that a lot of people have said, well, you know, why are we raising this now? Why is this coming up now? And the reason why it's coming up now is because it's never been mentioned before. And now Jude Bellingham has found himself on the wrong end of, of the buy and bonus, really probably in reality for the first time in his career and has gone, this is bullshit <laughs> and this guy's a crook and I'm just going to say so <laughs> because he's 18 and, you know, he hasn't picked up the niceties of, of German etiquette <laughs> and, and may never do so. And it's taken an 18-year-old kid, basically, to finally address this, something that should have been addressed much, much sooner. Uh, and I think that in the end, some good will probably come out of this. I don't know what it means for Felix Fire. I'm not going to pass comment on, on, on his punishment or whether or not he should have been. I mean, I, I know I note with interest Manuel Guefa earlier on today or yesterday in an interview suggested that Fire should not be a referee. And I wonder how long he's held that view because he's only recently retired. So you have to wonder whether or not perhaps Felix Weyer will maybe quietly at some point announce his retirement before the end of the season after this. Because he had a shocker and and he's he's clearly damaged goods. And I think after this, now it's been said, now, now the genie's out of the bottle, it's going to be very difficult. And if Dortmund intend decide to, to fight Bellingham's case and appeal, then it becomes a deeply public matter further. It brings the matter into further. And I think it's going to be very difficult for him to continue on that basis. It is worth bearing in mind that Felix Veit is a human being and a human being that has made a mistake quite some time ago. And it's important that we don't bully and hassle and abuse people for making these kind of mistakes. It's just football. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, I you know, for the most part, I just think of Felix Zweier as a kind of annoying referee. <laughs> I don't like the way that he, um, that he, you know, works games. I don't like the way that he interacts with, with players, particularly. He has a kind of, I don't know, a smarminess to him that I, I think is just speaks that he, he doesn't feel like he's, um, interacting with them on the same level. I don't know. Manuel Grefe, I can't say many, enough good things about him. If you want to hear actually more about, you know, Grefe and Heutzer and Zweier, you can always listen to an upcoming episode of our Scandal series on uh, Patreon. We're going to be talking about all kinds of uh, Bundesliga scandals starting in later part of this month to go along with the winter break and uh, taking us on through much of the Rook Runda. Yeah, why don't we why don't we talk a little bit before we, we leave this behind about where things stand from here. Dortmund are four points out. Dortmund are out of the Champions League. What's the next step for them at this point? Are they in a decent position to push on? Or are you feeling like this bellwether result, which all of us take it uh, as much or the media certainly does, is going to sort of dampen things for them. I think that they've got guys to come back from injury. I think that they've got, they, they need time to bed in under Marco Rosa's system. And I think that Bayern are not as imperious as they have been in the past. I think that they're there for the taking. May not be there for the taking by Dortmund because I, I, I feel strongly that there is also a, there's a psychological element to this as well, which is probably why it's enraging Dortmund and, and their legions of fans so much. 
It's because we know deep down that Bayern have got the, you know, they've got the evil eye over us. You know, they are a bogey team for us at the moment and we just can't get past them. And all of, and it, all of this plays into this, to this narrative. And, and that's, that's, that's the reality of it. But there'll be other teams that they'll come across that I think won't feel quite, quite the same. And I think that, that Bayern can, Bayern can drop points on the basis of the performance they have. This has been a very Dortmund heavy analysis of, of, of this game. But I think it is probably worth pointing out that Bayern, there's plenty there for opponents of Bayern coming up to look at and get stuck into. So I think that the title race is still there. And, and, and while I think there's an awful lot of vibe about the way Dortmund are going, I like to think that they will get better uh, from this. And I'm looking forward, actually, to a run in the Europa League because it's a fun competition. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well... That was quite a lengthy segment, but it was quite an eventful game with a lot of um, a lot of storylines to w- talk through. I think we probably need to move over to the other big news from the weekend, which is uh, the first big coaching change. Coaching change at a, at a top club, let's just say. Uh, Jesse Marsh, he is out uh, after just fourteen league games in charge of RB Leipzig. After uh, you know Friday night's two-one loss at SFC Union Berlin, the Red Bulls were pretty terrible on the night. I have to say they enjoyed a lot of possession, but didn't do a lot with it. They left themselves so exposed at the back that I feel Union could easily have hit them for you know four goals. Such were the the, the, the wealth of breakaway chances for the home side. But I do want to zoom in on uh, Jesse Marsh. I think in part because. I will go ahead and say it. I'm disappointed. He's a, the first sort of American coach at a Champions League side in the Bundesliga. But I'm not really surprised because things were not going right at Leipzig. Why don't we, why don't we bury him first and then, then we can go back and praise him? What makes this sacking to you make sense, Terry? Well, I, I think it was remarks immediately after by a sporting director or in the, in the hours that followed on from there that suggested that actually Jesse Marsh felt that, that this was not a good fit and that maybe it wasn't really working out for him. I mean, the results have not been great for Leipzig. And when you consider, and, and I think when they considered that they were getting Andre Silva in and although they were losing Oppenmeccano, that there was enough there for Leipzig to be able to produce you know, uh, uh, more coherent performances, turn some of those draws into wins. If you look at the teams that they've dropped points to, these are actually teams that last season you'd have gone, well, that's that's really bad. Like drawing to Cologne, that's terrible. But this season, it isn't actually because Cologne are good. D- you know, drawing drawing with the Freiburg last season, well, actually, in fairness, last season, that wasn't such a good... That's actually, this season, that's a phenomenally good result, actually. It's a pretty decent result. They beat Dortmund. You know, I mean, yeah, okay, Dortmund can be beaten. They lost to Hoffenheim. Hoffenheim are good. They lost to Leverkusen. Leverkusen went through a dodgy patch, but are good. And they lost to Union Berlin. And Union Berlin are probably one of only three teams, in my opinion, in the Bundesliga who are actually playing to the absolute best of their abilities. Everybody else is falling short. So in that respect, I think it's a bit, I think he's been unlucky that he's, that he's caught a number of teams who are in, in good form and he's not really necessarily had the chance to put his own stamp on things. But it does suggest from what things were saying, you know, afterwards that, that he, he wasn't particularly happy there either. And then I guess maybe he just felt that this was just the final straw. It's disappointing. Maybe they could have actually made this change before the international break. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, 
I agree with you about Onion, and I do want to give them a, a serious hat tip here because I remember watching this game, and th- the weird thing about this game is, you know, Jesse Marsh wasn't even at the game. He's in he's in COVID quarantine, uh, so he, you know, basically was was you know. I don't know, sending WhatsApps or whatever, if he had any ideas about uh, things that need to, needed to change. Onion were great in this game. I mean, their finishing was not at the standard that it sometimes is, but just the number of times that you saw them take possession deep in their own half, ping, ping, poom, and suddenly it was like, you know, Becker and Awani bearing down on the Leipzig goal. Just textbook well-executed, well-drilled movements out of the back, up the pitch, leading to chances. That is a very limited style of soccer. But (laughs) if you do it well, you're going to beat a lot of people. And that's what they're doing. And there's nothing to take away from them on that. That being said, that's not good enough if you are RB Leipzig being picked off like that. You need to have a, a, a sort of a, a plan B and, or a plan A, depending on whether or not that you agree that the team was on board with Jesse Marsh's plan A. And I really feel like that seems like the rub. This is a team that spent the last few years under Julian Nagelsmann moving away from the sort of classic Red Bull way of – Ralph Hasenhutl, 4-2-2-2, super vertical. Let's just uh, counter press and it doesn't matter if we lose the ball, we're just going to get it right back. That's just not where this team's head is at anymore. And I think when Marsh came in thinking that because he is one of those Red Bull coaches who's only ever coached at Red Bull teams other than a brief stint in Montreal, he thought that he was going to fit hand in glove at another Red Bull team or Rosenbosch-Bort team. And I just feel like this team didn't want that. They didn't feel like they were equipped to do that. They didn't feel like that's what they had signed up for. Indications from Mintzlaff on some of his comments on Sunday that, you know, Marsh told him after two different games, I think match day seven and ten, that he thought, I'm not the right guy for this job. Maybe we should start looking for somebody else. It's been very interesting to see Marsh, who is basically a Red Bull lifer at this point, who knows if that'll last, um, thinking about this very much on a am I the right person for this team, maybe not basis, as opposed to you know just hanging on to his job for dear life. He's he's thinking like a company man, which I don't know if he's going to win him any, many points with uh, the Red Bull higher-ups, but it seems to me like he fought for this job because it sounded like RB were thinking about some other candidates over the summer, and he got kind of upset that he was had been told previously that he was next in line. And maybe he's now thinking that maybe he shouldn't have done that. Maybe this was a poison chalice for him, that this was a basically a team playing at a level, at a different style than he wanted to play, and it was a bad fit. Yeah, he sounds like a guy who was uh, working in uh, accounts and then uh, asked to be transferred to internal auditing and then found out internal auditing was actually quite hard and and, and not much fun uh, and decided he'd like to go back to accounts, please. A really odd, not what you expect from professional football at all. And it's it's a reflection on the Red Bull structure, the Red Bull setup. Uh, But it also then betrays the flaw in the setup in that, Leipzig, who are at the top of that particular tree, they're they're at the top of the organisation, are not playing the kind of football 
the the rest of the groups clubs are supposed to be playing that's what it implies anyway or they're certainly not in sync and they're not sharing the same kind of visions as as the other clubs and so the principle therefore of saying right okay what we've got is we've got a structure of clubs and a structure of coaches and players and we'll funnel these players and coaches through until they all end up and the best ones end up at Leipzig and the not so good ones end up will will we'll stay at Salzburg you know the best coaches will go through that and 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 that's the conveyor belt and that means presumably that uh, I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce his name but Matthias Jaisel may well be the guy to replace him but would that be apart from the fact that he's clearly 12 years old would that be um the right move under those circumstances do Leipzig now have to recruit externally and then of course it becomes a question of who because that's got to be a pretty rigid very stylized very different structure i reckon at Leipzig to other football clubs i think i reckon Leipzig is a different football club to most other football clubs so what happens when you get an outsider coming in there what's that going to look like yeah yeah and i also feel in a way that this was a failed attempt by the Red Bull brass to kind of bring Leipzig back into line mm. with the rest of the clubs. And let's also face the fact that this tactical style that um, Marsh was trying to reinstitute, we might as well go ahead and, and put it that way, it's not really a style that a lot of your like tip-top players always want to play. There's a lot of coaches who play in something like this style with, I don't know, a minus B plus players, but like your A and A plus players, a lot of them want to play with the ball and they want to do something a little bit more ambitious, not only because it's the way that they came up playing in their, their, you know, youth careers, but also it's a point of pride. You don't just want to like huck the ball up the pitch and like go chase it and then maybe hope for a good bounce and get it back. And I think they actually have a little bit something inside of them that tells them no i don't want to i don't want to play that way yeah and this this is actually perfectly reasonable um, and happens at loads of other clubs they're playing football without the ball is a perfectly legitimate way to play football it's a great way to win football matches and some great managers and indeed great teams have have won great things by taking that there. i think instantly of the uh, 2010 into milan yeah Yep. Team that spent an awful lot of time not playing with the ball. The, the classic vintage peak Mourinho, Mourinho we, w- we would say. But it isn't for everyone, and I would suggest it's not forever. And, yeah, I mean, the reality is is that in, in at that level of professional football, the expectations is, is that if you're going to sit at that top table, you've also got to bring the goodies to the party as well. You have to play good football, and this only gets you so far. Um, and it's an odd way because it does suggest you're right that there's a kind of a systematic problem there. And, uh, and you know, it makes you think about, you know, the work that, that was put in by guys like Ralph Ranick beforehand and, and how it's come to be like this or how much of it is just the dressing room, just as you say, Matt, just when it comes down to it, the players sat there in the dressing room and say, no, we want to play more like, you know, we want to play more like, you know, a, a Pep Guardiola side. Uh, rather than you know, rather than the Jose Mourinho side, this is our dream. We want to play dream football, so it creates a very big difficulty for Leipzig as well. There, there seems to be a disconnect. Yeah. Hmm. What's next for Jesse Marsh? As I mentioned before, other than a brief stint uh, in early in his career, which was not very happy 
uh, at, at Montreal Impact, as their name was at the time. He's been a Red Bull guy his entire career. I don't know if there's another place for him to be in the Red Bull uh, ecosystem at the moment. But I do think that he's someone whose reputation is not damaged beyond any repair. I think there's going to be teams that uh, will want to take a look at him. Let's just for the sake of argument, leave it to the Bundesliga. What sort of level of team do you think he could legitimately have a chance of getting a job at either later this season, next season, whenever? I, it's difficult to answer that because he's had so little time in the Bundesliga to be able to genuinely prove himself. I mean, he did a good job at the Austrian Bundesliga, but we all know that that is a, that, that is a, a step down. I think you're probably charitably looking at perhaps the middle class teams, or you could possibly be looking at the failing sort of like upper middle class teams. So should, should, you know, should Frankfurt Made, want to make a change in coach, maybe. He might be an option for them. But I don't know. There's so much that's left unknown about that. Uh, I mean, maybe Gladbach will be, <laughs> there'll be a co- coaching coaching vacancy at Gladbach soon enough. Who knows? We don't know. But I would still probably suggest that, that he'd be more of a, of a middle-class, lower-middle-class Bundesliga side. So, uh, which doesn't, I don't know whether or not that would be good enough for him. I can't see him, you know, being in contention for any kind of top four, top six side, um, unless they are in deep, deep trouble. Uh, I, I, I wonder if he's kind of, I wouldn't like to suggest that he would go back to the United States. I hope he stays in Europe uh, and I hope he has, he has an, and he gets the opportunity to have another go, but maybe back in Austria or perhaps in Switzerland might not be a bad idea. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's put all that time into improving his German and it's quite good now. So you, you might as well uh, stick around. I, I do agree. I do agree. I, I think that um, the, the top, top jobs, which is to say Bayern Dortmund, uh, you know, Leverkusen, Leipzig, obviously, those are not really within his grasp. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, Hoffenheim are in the top six at the moment, which mm. means they're not going to be in the market for a coach anytime soon. But that's a job that I could see him in in the future. I could see him at, at Wolfsburg or at, at Frankfurt, Gladbach, Hertha, Stuttgart, those four giant clubs all in a stack at the wrong end of the table. Yeah, I think that there's another place for him to be. You, you mentioned real quick before we uh, finish off the first half, I think we should probably talk about the two sort of nuclear results from the weekend. Maybe one of which, as you alluded to earlier, might lead to a coaching change. Um, that That's Gladbach losing 6-0 at home to uh, Freiburg. And, you know, Freiburg, there are no mugs. But um, <laughs> to be down 5-0 after 25 minutes and to have – Almost all of those goals be really boneheaded, eminently preventable goals, the result of, uh, you know, miscommunication, missed assignments, whatever, around the goal mouth doesn't reflect well on what's going on there. You know, of course, Freiburg did get a, a, another goal before the halftime whistle. The second half was kind of a, a zombie kickabout where, where nobody scored anything. I just mentioned a moment ago that stack of teams playing well below expectations. Gladbach is certainly one of them. Frankfurt is another one. We probably need to start talking about Stuttgart, although we can talk about them in in, uh, relation to Hertha in a moment. What's up? What's going on in uh, Gladbach? and how long a leash does Adi Hütter have? I think what's going on is that there's been probably a breakup of that squad 
when Marco Rosas handed his notice in last season and that whatever project was going on there kind of died with that. And I wonder if what's happening is is actually that squad is done and needs to be broken apart and rebuilt. And I think that Max Abel has a rebuilding job on his hands. And I think that although, you know, I think results like that can can just exemplify the scale of the task. Uh, and there was an awful lot of cutting to Max Abel sat there in the dugout, staring into space, wondering what to do next. It is tempting to fire the coach, but of course you've got to pay the coach off and you then have to find another coach. And then the issue is, is that if the coach is not the problem per se, but actually it's your squad that needs refreshing, then maybe what you do in the short term is you try and bring some guys in in January to maybe go in there and kick some backsides in the dressing room and see if they can get some, get some life back in there. But the difficulty is, and, and this is, you know, with all apologies to Freiburg, who are one of those, the other one of the three teams, in my opinion, that are playing the best that they can be, they can play in the Bundesliga this season. I have a feeling I know what the third is. And I think although Freiburg on, they thoroughly deserved that win, there is no way that Freiburg jammed that win. It was not a lucky win. It was a total evisceration, particularly in the first half, and a thorough vindication of everything that Christian Streich has been doing at Freiburg for all these years. And I hope that Freiburg fans drink in as we say in the UK every second of this season because because I suspect that that squad's going to be flung to the four quarters of the world uh, in the summertime but the fact remains is is that if you are Munchen Gladbach and you are getting humped 6-0 at home by Freiburg that is a humiliation that is a historical humiliation and it's difficult to know how coaches can bounce back from that yep yep I would not be surprised at all uh, to see a move happen there. Whether that's the right thing to do or whether that's truly the root of the trouble, I think <laughs> I think you make a nice point that it maybe it isn't, but 6-0 at home to Freiburg is definitely the kind of result that smells like a coaching change. Totally different, totally different context. The other six-goal margin of victory from the weekend, that was uh, Bayer Leverkusen winning 7-1 at home against uh, Kreuter Fürth. <laughs> you know, Fürth, our Fürth, uh, we can't really necessarily read a lot into that. And they seem utterly unmoved by the number of results that, uh, that seem to be piling up against them. They're not thinking about coaching changes or making big, uh, transfer moves. They're just enjoying the Bundesliga such as it is while it lasts. Uh, Patrick Schick has got to be the story from this game. Four goals in 27 minutes in the second half, including a sequence which the Germans call a Lupenreiner hat trick, which is, you know, a flawless hat trick. Three goals, all in the same half, all consecutive with no other player scoring in the sequence, and with the left foot, right foot, and head. He did it. It's a tough standard, a crazy tough standard. The man did it. It's called the perfect hat trick in England. And, and it's, it's, it's summing up his season. I mean, we were, we were fulsome in his praise, uh, when, uh, not the last time, but I think the first time I was on, on this show and we talked about the, the potential of the partnership between, uh, Schick and Diaby and, uh, my, how that has, has blossomed. But chuck in Wurtz as well. I mean, Wurtz, you know, Schick, Diaby, mine alive. I mean, this is just like football gold. Wonderful times. And again, sadly, you suspect that it's, it's for a limited time only. 
uh, I'm afraid I, I, I can't see Wurtz not being at a different club in the summer because he's just coming on so much. I know it's foot, but it's still beautiful. And so it's still, it's still a wonderful thing. And, and that's what you do, right? That's what you do to foot is you eviscerate them. Yep. You meet a bad team, you beat them bad. That's what you do. Mm. Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break and then talk about some more football games. Okay, here comes part two of Talking Foosball Direct, the part where we talk about the rest of the match day just gone. We went so long with all of our classicer. Jesse Marsh, uh, six-goal margin of victory craziness. Uh, this is going to be a pretty short segment, I have to say. But I do want to start it off with um, you know, a game that, of course, I was watching and a game that I think um, was was pretty meaningful for, for both of these teams. That was um, Stuttgart versus uh, Hertha BSA. Very eventful start, of course, for Typhoon Korkut, the new coach of, uh, of Hertha. He's always team go 2-0 down inside of 15 minutes, but uh, you know later watch them claw their way back into the game on the back of a vintage performance from Stevan Jovetic. I understand you you watched this game as well. I thought that Hertha looked better in the second half. I thought the Belfadil Jovetic partnership up front was um, looking pretty skillful. I'm completely with you there. And wasn't it, it was Belfodil who was unlucky with a disallowed goal, wasn't he, in the first half? Oh, that was a scandal. That man. was a, that was a scandal. <laughs> it really was. It's completely... Like, I, I understand that Vladimir Dorita was in, you know, the goalkeeper's line of sight, but the goalkeeper was never, ever going to even get a fingertip on that <laughs> shot. That was 100% the equal of Erling Haaland's uh, perfect curler in, in the classicer. And it just was... <sighs> A scandal, a scandal for them to take that away on an aesthetic level, even yeah. even bigger than my hair to fan. It's an it's an affront to beautiful football, is what it is, and it's but I mean, but this is what what VAR can do. VAR, VAR can do good things, but it can do that. It can suck the life out of out of beauty, suck the soul out of the game when you try to make every decision like based upon whether or not it can be measured by VAR. And uh, then you accommodate, you, you, you change your laws accordingly. It's like the handball law, which is super, super subjective. But you say, no, it can no longer be subjective because we have to use VAR with it. And so therefore it must be objective. And then you get yourself into a right old state. And you're right. This was a, this was a goal from the angels and it's been denied us. And it was denied Belfordil too. But to the match itself. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Herta just. Clearly, I have a lot more purpose, I think, and are clearly encouraged to try and score goals uh, under Corkut. I think that this is what we've kind of expected. And I guess this is probably what Freddie Burbich wants. It's like we we need to attack um, and we need just to be a little bit more positive. I was surprised when Corkut got this job. Uh, it came kind of kind of kind of out of the blue, but it's certainly a very very encouraging performance, and it was a really really interesting game. Because Stuttgart like were like on fire for the first maybe twenty minutes or so, and I thought this is how the hell are they going to get back from this? But you know, you've got to give it to, to Hertha for like sticking in there and not and not giving up, and then producing some moments of quality. And yeah, we've said before, Jovetic. He's a classy player and has been for some years, and he really showed it there. I hope I hope we see a lot more of him and, and his class and under Corkut in the months to come. 
Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Although I, I really do feel like uh, Corkut's Corkut's reign at uh, Herta is going to be an intermezzo. Let's just say. Okay, let's move on and talk about maybe another. 3-2 result. We had several 3-2 results this week, and not just the Klassiker. Hoffenheim were 3-2 winners over Eintracht. You know, remember remember when people used to joke about the lack of home atmosphere in Zinsheim? Well, I mean, Hoffenheim looked like they maybe are going to turn that around. They, they might not have more fans in than just a handful at the moment. That, that's German public health regulation at the moment. But Hoffenheim, this is their fifth win straight at home. They're actually becoming very, very hard to beat there. I wouldn't necessarily say that this was a dominant performance, but uh, it's a very, I think it was a quality win considering um, Frankfurt, I think, have more than what they have shown. How are you feeling about this team? They're up in fifth place now, level with Union Berlin. They are holding their own. Well, I feel I should be watching them an awful lot more than I am. Uh, and I'm not going to, because I'm not a, I'm not a full-time professional Bundesliga journalist. I don't get the opportunity to watch all the games. And it won't surprise you to learn that Hoffenheim tend to be fairly low on my priorities list. The first thing I guess I would probably say is that this is a testimony to what happens when you stick with your coach. If you believe in your coach, even if they don't have a particularly, you know, exciting first season, uh, that they slowly turn things around. You know, this is the third team of the Bundesliga that seems to be playing to its absolute maximum. And it just shows how how far you can go. There's pace in that side. They're an interesting team to watch play um, when you get the chance to, to watch them. And I think that, that part of it is, yes, they're kind of taking advantage of the fact that there are other teams around that, 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 aren't, that aren't really performing too well. Um, but I just think, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a testimony to, to patience and... Um, and time and allowing your coach the necessary time to get it right so far. Right. Now, I, if I'm not mistaken, you have said at two junctures in this podcast that there are three teams in the Bundesliga who you believe are playing fully up to their potential. You've mentioned two of them already. You've mentioned Freiburg. You've mentioned Union Berlin. I've got a guess on what that third one is. Go on. I think it's Bochum. Do you? Well, good for you. I do. And the, good for you. It isn't, actually. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. Bochum? <laughs> Are you kidding me? This Bochum, this, was, this is yeah. the, unlikely, the unlikely promoted side from last year. They're up to 10th ahead of Leipzig, Frankfurt, Gladbach, Hertha, Stuttgart, ahead of all those teams. How can they not – how can they earn your love? They were 3-2 winners at Augsburg this weekend. How can they squeeze more potential out of their squad? Well, do you know, the third team was Mainz, and I'm probably being uh, unkind because you're quite right. Bochum in 10th is, is, is pretty darn amazing. And again, it's, a, it's my failing because I, because I, I can't watch it all. And, and Bochum is just not a team that I've been able to catch up with, which is, I'm sure will devastate some listeners because I'm pretty certain that we have some, some Bochum fans among our, among our listeners. And I am more than happy. Uh, to extend that number from three to four in Bochum's case. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, Augsburg, this is what, I mean, like three, two, it's, it's a narrow win, but hey, it doesn't matter. You're, you're newly promoted. Everyone's expecting you to go down. You know, who cares how you beat Augsburg, but you've got to beat Augsburg if you've got any chance of staying in the, in this league. Uh, because you know, they are, they're a very eminently beatable side. So, so it's a fantastic achievement. And, you know, the, 
it's, we've seen this before, haven't we? We all thought Union would be straight back down, didn't we? And we, we and I think again, it goes back just I'm repeating myself. There are enough underachieving teams in this Bundesliga that if you can get your shit together, <laughs> frankly, even if you don't have the best players and you haven't got the best team, in fact, even if you've got comfortably one of the worst teams, if you can play, get the best out of them, then that may well be enough. And it certainly seems to be the case with Bochum. All right. Well, let's let's let you talk about Mites here. They're knocking on the door of Europe again. They've leapfrogged Wolfsburg, who they who they beat three nil on Saturday. You had um, Jonathan Burkhardt and Anton Stach both scoring in the first five minutes of that game. Kind of kind of tends to cast a big shadow over a game when you're two nil up five minutes in, and consequently Wolfsburg did find it a little bit hard to get in gear. What is it about Mites and the way that they're playing that impresses you so much? I just think it's the dedication to their plan and the the skill of their coach to get the best out of them and to make certain that they that they know what what their tactical plan is and, and stick to it. And then and then coaxing, you know, you know, greatness out of some of these players. I mean Jonathan Jonathan Burkhart, you know, what's that, seven goals now, going fantastic guns for a twenty one year old you know, a, a, a breakout star of the Bundesliga for this season. And it's not easy with a team of Wolfsburg's quality um, and with their determination to be able to keep them out and hold that to to nil, to keep a clean sheet uh, against them. And I think the coach has to take a huge amount of the credit for this because he transformed that team pretty much the moment he, he arrived. And he's really pushing for them. And I think I said, suggested that perhaps they might be a Europa League uh, contenders or a quality Europa League qualification contenders uh, for this season. And and they're looking pretty damn good for it. Maybe the UEFA Europa Conference League? That may be a little bit more like it. Yeah, absolutely. I do feel UEFA need to work on the title of that. I couldn't believe it when they announced that. <laughs> it's, it's, a cra- it's, it's a crazy title. I mean, I think I think Mites deserve some kind of um, they're, they're like Freiburg. I think that you know these are the these are clubs that have just you know got it right for quite some time now. Mites have had some difficulties because they've made some bad recruitment hires, but I think structurally, in terms of the way that they build their club, you know they've got it right and they deserve the success that's coming their way. And they're well sorted for it. They've got a they've got a good scouting network. They've got a good squad of players. They've got a clear vision and plan. And they are an example to other more illustrious clubs on on, on how to do things right. And Svensson was an inspired signing as a coach. I, and, and it's interesting that I don't think anyone's mentioned him for the Leipzig job. I don't know whether that's because he quit Red Bull and therefore doesn't want it, or whether or not it's quite simply why would he go when he's having so much fun at Mainz. Yeah, I'm just now uh, seeing on, on Kicker, and this may not last uh, for it, even a couple of more days, but it's there now that uh, Leipzig are looking at uh, Roger Schmidt as their preferred candidate to take over from Jesse Marsh, which, hey, he's a good coach. He was a good coach at uh, Leverkusen. He's a good coach now at PSV. He was good in Salzburg before that. I'm not shocked to hear that. Will he bring Mario Goetze with him, though? <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Colt is Kino, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Let's let's do it. Let's sign let's sign up for it. Okay, the last uh, the last game to just uh, briefly mention is uh, Armenia Bielefeld and uh, Cologne's one one draw in Bielefeld. It looks like it was snowing at the game. I'm, I'm you know I don't know much about what what went on there. I didn't watch it. I don't 
know what to say. <laughs> no, I'm really sorry. I didn't watch it either. And uh, it's difficult to know what to say. Bielefeld are dogged and determined. Cologne can be brilliant. And then they can kind of be not quite so brilliant. And I guess that's probably what happened. But we'll never know because we weren't there. There you go. That is it for this edition of Talking Foosball Direct. This was produced, as always, by Aidan Rantoul. Really good to have you back, Terry. Do you want to give us a little bit more of a lowdown on this book? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, so as, as I said at the top, it's called uh, Borussia Dortmund, A History in Black and Yellow. It is the history of Borussia Dortmund Football Club from 1909 all the way up to the DFB Pokal win in 2021 and all points in between. And uh, it was it's published by Oakley Books and it's out now. Uh, there's only a few copies left as far as I know on Oakley's uh, website, but Amazon have just taken stock of hundreds of them. So they are there. And I know a lot of you uh, listening are from the US, are in the US. Uh, and so uh, it's a probably best to order from Amazon anyway, because I think it may work slightly better for you from the postage point of view. So just go to amazon.com or .co.uk or amazon.whatever, type in my name and it'll take you to the book and buy it. Muchas gracias, vielen Dank. Nice. That must have been kind of a fun feeling, typing in your name (laughs) to Amazon. My publisher phoned me and went, right, go to Amazon. Yeah, right, type your name in. Right, and then that, Oh my God! Because obviously it's my first book, so I'm very, very giddy, and it's a very, very special and very proud moment. So, thanks to everyone who helped get me there, including you, Matt Herman. Oh, spectacular! Thanks very much. Uh, you can of course follow Terry on Twitter. He's at Terry DeFellin there. If you want to contact me, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman. Talking Football Extra will of course be back in a couple of days. Talking Football Fantasy will get you ready for Match Day 15 at the end of the week. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all.